All right, guys, welcome to the Adam Peter Fitness Podcast. Today on the uh, show, I have none other than Mike, Tash- Mike Tashir, who is the founder of Reactive Training Systems and who is really an OG in this sport of powerlifting. Um, he is responsible in large part for the widespread adoption of RPE-based training. Um, Michael also is an elite coach and athlete, which I uh, first want to ask Mike, um, you know, how has that experience of you competing at an elite level informed your decisions as a, as a coach and how you coach your own athletes? Because I think one of the big things that you hear is that you can't be a good coach and a good athlete at the same time. And I would, Personally, I would argue the opposite. I would think it would inform a lot of training and programming dis- decisions, but um, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I never quite understood what the reason was for that. Like, maybe if you were doing some sport where like participation required just enormous amounts of time, thinking like endurance sports or I don't know, lots of sports require lots and lots of practice, but strength and power sports are not one of those. So I never quite understood why like you logistically couldn't do both. And to me, it seemed to be helpful, you know, that I think, I do think competing at a high level uh, gives me certain insights that other people might not have. Um, They tend not to come up a lot except with those high level athletes. Like, one thing that you hear people talk about a lot is uh, going to worlds and that it's just different. Competing at worlds is different. And we have tried and tried to come up with like why it's different. Is it the judging? Is it the environment? Is it the travel? Is it the time zone shift or the food differences? I mean, it's probably a little bit of all those things, but I mean, it is different and it's hard to maybe buy into that unless you've experienced it, I think, or kind of, it's hard to understand quite how that would affect you without having experienced it. Um, So there's, there's things like that. I think in general, the thing that you're looking for from a coach, I do think it's important that a coach trains hard, right? I made a post about this recently that I think it's really important that a coach trains hard because your job as a coach, if you're trying to better yourself professionally, you know, you're going to be developing ideas. You're going to be developing uh, slightly different spins on uh, common themes and things like that. And how do you know that that's having the intended effect? I mean, to some extent, you got to try it and see if it works, but I think trying it on yourself first does give you some insights. Like you can, you can understand things that you might not otherwise understand. Hold on just a minute. Sorry about that. Uh, the, The joys of uh, schooling from home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah where was I? I was uh, uh, getting all poetic about coaches needing to train hard. Yeah, you, you said that you wrote a, a recent post on on the, the topic about uh, why you think it's important for uh, coaches to actually train hard 
Yeah. Uh, right. leaves. It kind of gives yourself and, and coaches in general. I mean, yeah, I think that, you know, what you experience is important and the athletes experience as they go through a training intervention is important. You know, like, do you feel a pump? Should you feel a pump? Uh, do you feel, you know, is a, a certain sequence of move, movements too taxing on your lower back or on your grip or uh, something like that? Is this an appropriate amount of volume? I mean, of course, that varies pretty widely, but, you know, what does that experience feel like, you know? And I mean, you could just avoid that, I guess, by never trying anything new, but that seems to be pretty obviously a problem, right? Yeah, for, for sure. Um, um, for, for myself personally, um, I know that because when I, you know, when I came from a bodybuilding background, um, doing the concept of like doing like squat and bench on the same day or doing a squat and deadlift on the same day, that was like, what the heck? And, you know, SBD day, like, what is this? Um, and like, sometimes I, I really think that's, like if I personally didn't understand what it felt like to um, one come compete water cuts um, have to um, go into the gym when I'm tired and still try hard, you know, still try you know, although, you know, obviously respecting RPE and whatever my prescribed programming is um, knowing what it feels like to, to be, to be sore or not have much, much sleep or be stressed out from school. I, I feel like it for myself personally, I find I can better make programming decisions and not only, decisions from like a top down model, but on the fly, because there's lots of times, especially during preps where I feel like, you know, there's everything kind of changes like on the flip, flip of, of a dime. Um, what, what, what has your experience been on throughout like meet preps with, 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 with yourself and with, with coaching athletes, because I know a big part of your approach to programming is bottom up, which is um, for listeners who are, are, are unaware in traditional periodization models, lots of it was um, top down. And Mike had a really, really uh, innovative idea with programming called emerging strategies, um, which he helped, you know, Mike is going to be able to talk about that better than I ever, ever can. But essentially, my, my understanding of it is that periodization is flawed. Um, and although there are some heuristics of periodization that we should follow, it's likely, you know, you need to like pay attention to like emerging data. So I guess like, how would you apply that to like lifters training and what, and prep and whatnot and whatnot? Yeah. Um, I suppose I've backed off of some of the language around the flaws of periodization. I mean, yeah, a lot of that's true, but pointing it out maybe isn't the most helpful thing I could do and say. Um, it, so let me back up for a minute and we can talk about ways to teach emerging strategies in, in a bit maybe, but uh, to just kind of give you the quick overview of what emerging strategies is. We all know that everyone responds to programs differently and that uh, a program that works great for one person may not work well for someone else. Yet we all have this kind of typical uh, programming structure for powerlifting where, you know, we start our block with higher volumes and lower intensities and we gradually uh, increase the intensity and reduce the volume uh, as the competition gets closer. And my thought was, well, I mean, if we all respond differently, then conceivably there's some people that don't respond well to that. And that seems to be true. 
Now, emerging strategies comes into play when it's like, okay, let's figure out a way to learn uh, what does an athlete respond best to. And the way that you would do that is, is to start with, uh, you have to simplify things. Uh, you're trying to be able to understand uh, the athlete's response. You're trying to be able to separate signal from noise. So probably the most, so emerging strategies itself is a concept and we can take it pretty far, you know, once, once we grasp the concept, but the most straightforward iteration of it is, is this, we design a training week and we do that training week over and over. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, let's design a training week. So exercises, sets, reps, and RPEs will allow the weight on the bar to change based on performance, but we're trying to give a constant stimulus. So it's the same exercise, the same sets and reps, and the same RPE, the same difficulty. Uh, and we repeat that training week. And while we're repeating that training week, we're monitoring the athlete's response. And what we notice is that uh, in general, there are three different response types. Um, you can, you have athletes that just improve. So uh, they do week one and then they do week two and that's a little bit better. Then they do week three and that's a little bit better and so on. Uh, and then you have uh, type two responders where, you know, they do week one and then week two is a little bit worse. And then week three is maybe a return to baseline. Week four, five, six, and beyond is uh, performance improvement. Then your type three response uh, starts off with like this flat trajectory. So they do week one, week two is about the same, week three is about the same. And then when you get close to the end of the block, there's a sudden performance improvement. Those are the three typical response types that we see. But of course, you don't just get stronger forever doing this. It's not like you just repeat that same week over and over and right into the sunset. You get stronger until you don't. So let's talk about that type one response because that seems to be the easiest to wrap our heads around. So this is the kind of person that does week one and then week two is a little bit better. Week three is better than that. And week four, five, six, so on is these are all performance improvements. All right. Well, let's say that we get to week five and that's an improvement. Then week six is a down week. Like week six is actually a performance uh, regression. Okay. Well, since this is our first emerging strategies block, we'll do another week, week seven, just to check and make sure. Okay. Yeah. That one wasn't much better or maybe it was even worse. Uh, so we know that week five was your peak performance. You know, and then, you know, we did two weeks after that, and those are both uh, performance regressions. Now, what we find is that this number is fairly stable. So in this case, it's five weeks or five exposures because you're exposing to that microcycle five times. So five exposures to a peak condition. Uh, so we can use that when planning our block structure. Now we know how long should your blocks be. And what we find is that some people hit a peak condition after three weeks. Some people, you know, I would say the average is five to six weeks, but you have some people that run seven, eight, nine weeks. Um, there's pros and cons to different block lengths. 
you know, but if, if your time to peak is three weeks and I have you doing four week, five week blocks, that's going to suck. <laughs> you know, like week four and week five are going to be miserable every time. Conversely, if your time to peak is five weeks and I've got you doing six or eight week blocks, um, or, or rather, let's go the other way. Let's say your time to peak is six weeks and I've got you doing three week blocks, then you're never really getting to that truly peak performance. You know, I think that there's something about that peak performance that is extra good, <laughs> to put it not so eloquently. Um, I think there's some benefits to getting into that peak condition, lifting weights that are, you know, they may not be actual PRs, like, but a peak condition will often put you close to PR levels, if not hitting new PRs in the gym. So, and I think there's value in that. So uh, finding that time to peak is, is probably the first step. And then from there, we don't have to go past your time to peak. We can use that in planning your blocks. So you do your first training block. We call these development cycles. And then, uh, so you do your first development cycle and uh, you know, we establish your time to peak. Then we do another development cycle that's a little bit different. And then your third development cycle is different still. And so they start to share common themes. There may be an exercise that's common uh, in a couple of different development cycles, or maybe, um, you know, you might sequence your uh, intensities in a certain way or something like that. Well, after a while, we've done several different blocks. Uh, we're logging our training, we're tracking our results, and we can run these things called block reviews that uh, assesses and catalogs uh, the training, uh, the training that you did, that you actually did, and what the result was. And we start to see uh, some common themes. We may see that, hey, every time we have a block that is really good, you know, you're doing uh, really good for your bench, you're doing pin presses, you know, so is that a guarantee that pin press is driving your bench forward? No, but Truthfully, correlation is the best that we can get. This is a, a N equals one scenario. And if we're trying to dial in training for an individual, your correlation is the best you can hope for. You know, so we'll of course use our head when we're experimenting, but we always want to come back to uh, what do we have like a justified belief in, you know, and looking back at those block reviews and saying, hey, you know, we've done five different blocks so far and our, our top three blocks all included pin press. Like, well, that's good to know, you know? So when you're getting ready for a meet and you're trying to put together the best block that you can, you've got really good data to go back and draw from and, and say, Hey, this is the stuff that I respond the best to. So let's put that into this block. And so your pre-competition blocks end up being like a, like a greatest hits block. And uh, the idea there is that you're doing all the things that you know that you respond best to. Now, lots of times this ends up taking the shape of like a traditional periodization structure. And that makes sense, right? Like the traditional structure of, you know, starting with higher volumes and then progressing toward higher intensities as the competition approaches, you know, it makes sense that most powerlifters would respond favorably to that because that's, if they didn't, we would have figured something else out, you know, but 
if you're one of those people who don't respond best to that, then that's really important to know. And what I've found over time is that there's some aspect of that that you know isn't perfect for almost everybody. Nobody is bang on average in everything. You know, so there's a an exercise that doesn't quite work or an intensity that helps you a little bit more than you might otherwise estimate. And some people, the difference is quite big. And we've kind of over time emerged onto some strategies that uh, are fairly unconventional, you know, and, but hey, if this is, we're going to follow the trail of the athlete's response. And if we're doing what the athlete responds best to, and they go to a competition and perform awesome, then that's the thing that's the most important anyway. So feel free to steer me a little bit. Right. <laughs> if you so want I, 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 wanted, I wanted to, to, to just, just go off of what we said about, you know, certain exercises working well, because uh, in my personal experience, um, you know, basic principles would say, Hey, you know, specificity of exercises should increase as you approach competition. Well, mm-hmm. my last block, um, I still made, you know, I still made improvements on my squat, but we know we took out safety bar squats and I noticed that, you know, having two days of comp squatting, I started having elbow issues. My bench press didn't start, didn't go as well. Um, my astral primary squat day, quote unquote, was weaker than I wanted it to be. And then, you know, like clockwork, I put back in safety bar squats with, with, with you know, Eric after we basically performed a block re- re- review and um, my squat and Mari setting PRs, like my estimated pause squat one rep max is higher than my last competition. Um, certain, and like, you know, I'm uh, you know, a conventional deadlift once a week. I keep that in, even though I pull sumo uh, with de- with bench press. Like I have to keep in, you know, eight reps or else my bench tanks. Um, mm-hmm. So like really, really interesting things um, like that. And I, I wanted to kind of talk about different responses because this is something that I've, uh, I've, I think it's really easy if you're not a type one responder, especially if you're a type two where you're like, where you, you know, you get into the block and then you're not responding positively. Uh, the first thing that, you know, most lifters will do is freak out and then tell you the coach that they suck and the program's not, not working. Um, in the sense of that, so is it basically only one down session and then a return to baseline? Um, because what I usually tell my lifters, what I've observed is that if it's about two exposures, like, like you said, that are bad, then we probably did something wrong. Um, I guess, how do you program for somebody that does not have a type one response? Do you just have that, that like ex- expectation that's going to be down week and do you program in like an intentionally lower RPE on that week or just, or just, just because RPE adjusts on the fly anyways? Um, like how do you program a block when it's not a type one response? You know, maybe it's a type two or, you know, like type three, I see all the time with, with, with bench, for example, like, especially during volume, it's like nothing happens nothing happens, nothing happens. And then all of a sudden PR. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the type threes are the hardest to deal with, you know, because, you know, you think a block could go six weeks. So like you're doing, you're in like week four, week five, and you're like, yep, same, same as before, lifting the same weights, same difficulty. Like it's, it's tough, you know, but I think knowing that this is a possibility is uh, is important and the type two response kind of the key distinction there is that you know you you do week one 
week one is always a little bit not fun. You know, like your motivation to train is high, but you're just coming off of your pivot block. And so strength is, is down from the previous peak condition, right? So you're motivated to get back in there and lift some heavy weights, but now you're not quite capable of lifting weights that are as heavy as they were. So that's a little bit like uh, an emotional letdown, or it can be. Uh, I find that one way to mitigate that is to really focus on technical execution and, and really try to, to dial that in. But so week one is kind of meh, you know, it's all right, whatever. Then you go to week two and it's actually a down performance. That can be, that can be difficult. Again, it's, it's easier if you understand that this is a possibility and, and what should happen from here. Cause a lot of times that disappointment is about expectation management, you know? So you do week one, then you do week two, if that happens to be a down performance. I would expect week three to be a return to baseline or very close to it. If week three is also a poor performance or, or even worse than week two, I'm getting pretty concerned at that point that, and I'm probably gonna change something pretty significantly. Because if we end up digging ourselves a hole for two or three weeks, I mean, we're, there's not a whole lot to salvage from that block anyway you know, we'll end up spending the rest of the block just trying to get back up to baseline. Um, so what I would expect for the type two is that second week is going to be a down performance. The third week should be a return to baseline or close to it. And we should see uh, uh, measurable progress uh, thereafter. You know, I mean, with, with some exceptions, none of this stuff is actually perfect. Um, I worked with a lifter for a lot of years, um, world-class athlete out of Australia and, uh, her pattern, she was mostly a type one responder, but her pattern was like two sessions improvement and then one session regression. I mean, it's kind of fits the mold of being a type one response. Um, but that was, you know, unique to her. And you put enough blocks together and you start to notice those patterns, you can rely on that. Like I remember we were getting ready for Worlds one year and uh, we're like three weeks out from Worlds. So you're getting nervous. Uh, you're getting pretty emotional about it. You know, it's, it's go time, you know. And uh, she has this really uh, bad performance, you know. And Athletes get upset about that. I get, I would get upset about that, you know, but in this case, as a coach, I was able to go back to those block reviews and say, look, this is normal. This happens all the time. And we expect it. You know, you just had two sessions up. This session is down. And now we're going to have two more sessions that are up. And that last session that's up is going to happen on the competition day. We'll have our peak performance on the competition day. So this is, we can even take this down session as a sign that things are progressing as they should, you know, and lo and behold, they did. And we had a great, great competition. Uh, so yeah, I think like measuring those actual responses and, and using that is, it gives you like real actionable data and you can use that in all manner of different things. You can use it from planning to athlete buy-in 
you know, all kinds of stuff as a coach. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do think that what you, what you said there about just letting them know that, that that's a possibility uh, yeah. is, is a big thing. Um, and I, I also think that, you know, the longer that you do train, obviously, uh, because I, I think a big thing about emerging strategies that I like the bit that I like the most about it and the whole concept is that it makes you just pay attention. It's about paying attention to your training. It's about thinking about your training. It's about um, not just going into the gym, lifting the weights and then going home and being like, gee, I wonder if that's going to actually help me or like what, you know, did that work or not? Because a lot of times I don't think many lifters, at least who are newer to powerlifting, really understand the importance of data tracking. Um, and I find that, um, there's a certain personality type that does really, really well with, with, with powerlifting. Um, usually they like, they like data in some, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, and I've, I think that's what you said about just letting them know that, that, that that's a possibility, paying attention to the data, to the response. So then you can plan because like what you said, like, you know, what if you plan a peak where you, you know, for that lifter in Australia, their third performance was their, you know, on competition day was on that down for performance. So this is something I actually noticed like with my squat and my deadlift, like pretty predictably my, when my deadlift will have its highest week, my squat usually has a downturn in performance, but then my, then the week after that, my deadlift is usually not as good. And my, my squat goes up. And I found that that's about, you know, a three, three, three exposures on deadlift for me. Um, and then about, you know, then I'll have a down session and then I'll have two high sessions, one low and then one up and then bench. It's always just been a type three where it's just been static, static, static. And then at the end of the block, like I would do that, this, that this would happen. I went into my session. I was just sitting around, you know, 280 on bench for my top triple at eight. And then all of a sudden 300 times eight, I'm like, okay, <laughs> like that happened. So I guess just paying attention is, is what's just really, really yeah. stands out to me about like what you said um, in terms of athletes. Um, how do you, I, I'm sure that at this point, reactive training system does attract that sort of client that is kind of more in, you know, familiar with your system. Um, how do you, how do you get your athletes to kind of, I guess, start thinking about their training more. Is it, is it mostly a personal decision or what influence can a coach have of, I guess, getting them more bought into that process of tracking data? Yeah, I, I try not to put, uh, there is a certain type of information that the athlete has to provide, right? Like. The training log is one thing and that covers a lot of ground, you know, but there is a certain amount of introspection that can happen. That's just helpful. You know, um, like when I was working with, uh, Isabella von Weissenberg, um, I really enjoyed working with her because the kinds of information that I would get back from her, uh, like when we were getting ready to write a new block was just fantastic. You know, like she is a very intuitive uh, kind of lifter. And so she would have thoughts and preferences on things that she felt like were working or, you know, you know, I haven't done this in a while and I kind of feel like I kind of need to get back to pin squats or something like that. 
And then I would look at the block views and, well, yeah, actually pin squats, a good movement for us. <laughs> so it was, it was a really good collaboration. Uh, now I've also got lifters who don't really want to be that involved. And I, I think it's missing something, uh, but you can still do a great job. Like, I don't know if it's missing so much that it would be worth like putting an extra burden on the athlete. Like, they just really don't want to be involved in that way, right? Like it's okay for me to spend a lot of time thinking and hand-wringing over, uh, over different athlete program problems. Um, but, you know, they need to be involved to the extent that they're comfortable with it. You know, like um, I just need to be able to make the decision, you know, and if they're providing me with, uh, the training log is probably the biggest thing uh, because that will tell me most of what I need to know. But then video analysis helps fill in the gaps. There's always gaps in the data. Uh, the data has a shelf life. You know, you're not the same lifter that you were six months ago, a year ago. So we can't, we'll never know everything that there is to know about an athlete. Uh, so the data will give us kind of the broad strokes and, and point us in a direction. This lifter responds best to, uh, you know, the three to five rep range, the, you know, seven to eight RPE range, you know, uh, and then like, we don't, maybe don't see much results outside of that. So that that's good. That gives us a, a nice broad stroke. Um, sorry. I'm, my kids yelling in the background, but, um, but like that would paint like a, a good, uh, like a good broad strokes for us. Um, but then like we can review the video and stuff like that and uh, fill in a bunch of details. Okay. Um, that makes a lot, a lot of sense to me. So I guess, um, is there any differences that you would have with begin like training status of beginner, intermediates or advanced lifters and how you apply emerging strategies or is it kind of homogeneous? It's, it's fairly, it's pretty much the process that I described to you. I would tend to start there with lifters, especially lifters that, you know, I, that I'm just starting with. Uh, if they're new to emerging strategies or just new in general, that's kind of where I'll start. Um, and I mean, emerging strategies is really broad too. So you can it, plug in whatever intervention would be appropriate. Like I just recently started coaching uh, Steve Ringut from Belgium. And he's obviously a very experienced lifter, but he's not used emerging strategies before and wasn't super familiar with it. So when we started, we're using a training strategy that's appropriate for an experienced lifter, and it's just coming in an emerging strategies packaging. You know, uh, I mean, it's got the repeating microcycles and like the essential features, but the strategy fits the lifter. On the other hand, I'm working with a couple fairly novice lifters now as well. And I mean, they're not doing singles their volume is tailored to meet them appropriately. But like those essential elements of like the repeating microcycle, uh, dialing things in so that it fits uh, that athlete's uh, specific uh, like training response, like all that stuff is, is similar, you know? Like it's, um, um, they're, 
they're doing the same framework um, because they're both new to the emerging strategy system. And then, um, you know, we're just kind of plugging in the strategy that's appropriate. Now, as lifters get further, further and further along, our focus changes a little bit. Like, like I mentioned, like in the first block, what you're trying to do is establish your time to peak. Then, you know, from there is kind of level one data. You know, you've got to figure out what exercises do we respond well to, what intensities, things like that. After you figure that out, you need to start looking toward uh, sequences of development cycles. So you may find out that, hey, this lifter, you know, responds really well to, um, to like a medium intensity deadlift, you know, low RPEs, medium intensities, um, you know, you figure out what exercises they respond well to. Okay, that's great. And that'll inform your greatest hits block, maybe your tier two block. So like your greatest hits, it's a tier one block. And then the block before it might be a tier two block. You don't want to, you can't use your greatest hits twice in a row. That's probably not a good practice. So, you know, we find other things that also have a good robust uh, response. We program those in that tier two block. Um, but what do you do outside of that? Well, you know, are there things that we can do that will set the lifter up for an even better tier one and tier two block? You know, conventional powerlifting programming is that, you know, those should be higher volume, you know, higher volume should precede that, right? Uh, and that's not wrong in a lot of cases. And in fact, in an emerging strategies framework, when you're first starting off with a lifter, you don't know, that's a good place to look first because it works, it works great for a lot of people. But you have to be open to the possibility that that won't work great for your athlete that you're working with right now. So do they need a, a high volume block or does that just beat them up? Um, maybe they need a high intensity block. Maybe that helps potentiate the, the later blocks. And it could just be that uh, the potentiating block, the preparatory block, maybe it's not driving a lot of progress by itself. You know, I'm in, a, in this situation right now with my bench, I'm doing a preparatory block and it's holding pretty stagnant, but I'm not doing the stuff that normally drives my bench forward. So the thinking here is that I'm doing a block where I'm maintaining strength, I might be building a little bit of strength, uh, but then I'm doing all that without using my tier one, tier two methods. So then when I go back to those tier one, tier two methods, hopefully uh, we're a little bit more sensitive to that type of stimulus and I get a more robust training response. So that's a, some kind of things that you're looking for there. Uh, and then you also have to be mindful of kind of dialing in your pivot blocks. And that's something we haven't really got a chance to talk too much about today, uh, the pivot, but um, there's in kind of introductory emerging strategy stuff, we, we kind of set the pivot aside for a minute and say, just think of it like a deload week. And that's fine, but there's so much more to it. And there's a lot of optimization that can be done there. 
And it's difficult <laughs> because at that point you're talking about something that, you know, you're trying to walk a tightrope with maintaining strength, uh, but also dissipating fatigue and setting yourself up for a successful development block, but you won't, it's difficult to attribute the things that you're doing in the pivot uh, to the effects that you're experiencing, you know, six, eight weeks down the road, you know? So uh, optimizing the pivot is difficult, but it's potentially really useful, really important, you know, just to, to shoring things up and really dialing in the training long-term for an athlete. So my understanding of pivot weeks is that essentially, so you're running a, a developmental block and you're running certain exercises, maybe certain rep schemes. Um, a, a pivot week is new, new exercises, new reps ranges. I know that uh, you're working with Jordan Feigenbaum. He was talking a little bit about uh, like his pivot or he was doing like, so like you guys were experimenting with like some uh, like lower rep, like kind of circuit style stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of to, uh, the, the purposes are one, shed, shed fatigue sort of, is there is a little bit of re resensitization to upcoming training that we know works probably. Um, and then maybe just trying out new things and seeing like, well, maybe like you like this exercise or this feels good on your joints or something like that. Is that essentially yeah. what a pivot block is? Pivots are great times to try new things like new exercises, like you mentioned. Uh, outside of that, there's five goals in a pivot block. Uh, so a development block has one goal improve your sport performance. A pivot block has five goals is like everything else that you care about. <laughs> you know? um, in a pivot, we need to make sure that we're dissipating any accumulated fatigue. There shouldn't be a ton, but there could be. And it's a, this is the opportunity to let that dissipate. Uh, and something kind of, the second goal kind of goes hand in hand with that. And that's to resensitize to train stimulus. Um, I, feel pretty strongly that that's a thing. I know that that's a difficult thing to research, but I feel quite strongly that that's a thing. Um, the third goal, which runs counter to the first two, is to maintain your strength. We want to dissipate fatigue and we want to resensitize you to training, but we don't want your strength to go into free fall during this period either. You know, so we want to do some training enough to maintain strength but not so much that we're uh, impeding the uh, impeding the dissipation of fatigue or impeding uh, resensitization. So those are the first three, I would say, are the primary goals. And then we also have a goal of improving energy systems, which should have the downstream effect of improving recovery and work capacity later, uh, long-term. And then the final goal is to improve durability. Um, just again, like a lot of this stuff falls into anecdote and like coaching practices, but, you know, I've had lifters, uh, I'm sure you've had lifters as well that, you know, by God, when they do rows, their shoulders just feel better, you know, and whether we can think of like a really robust reason why that's the case or not, I mean, let's just do some rows, you know, <laughs> I mean, if it makes your shoulders feel better and it lets us bench press more in the next development block, then sure, let's do it. It might not directly contribute to the bottom line, but that's all right. Uh, it's contributing in a secondary way and, and we don't want to undervalue that either. 
uh, but you know, doing some things that are not just sagittal plane over and over. Um, I mean, I, I don't know for sure that that stuff is, you know, going to help reduce injury rates or things like that, but I think it can't hurt. I think it probably helps you be a well-rounded uh, athlete uh, and, you know, gets you out. And if nothing else, hell, it's, it's a little bit interesting, you know, and right about you, right about the time that you're starting to think like, Jesus, side lunges freaking suck. Well, now it's time to get back to your development block and do the stuff that you like doing anyway. So no big deal. Yeah, I, I really, I really like that because um, one of the biggest things I found with, with deal weeks in, in general um, or pivots or introductory phases is mm -hmm. that um, it kind of just gets you excited for upcoming training again, um, especially because this sport, you know, sport practices is redundant by, by nature. And if you want to get, if you want to get better um, at it, um, I, uh, I used to do more full on deal weeks. I had a much more extreme training approach. Um, now that I'm under TSA and um, Eric Bodhorn, what we kind of do is we do um, four week accum accumulations and then we have a linear periodization slash a pivot week with, uh, or like, I guess it's more of like an, an intro and a lot less of a pivot where, where I, it's kind of a combination of the two, honestly, where we'll introduce new exercises, new rep schemes. Um, and, you know, I'll tell Eric what I thought about the, about the last block, how I responded, um, you know, where I think we should go from here. Um, I also wanted to say one thing that you said about maybe the blocks that we do are always going to be there for progress. Maybe they're just to resensitize ourselves to the things that we know work. And I think that's something that um, is, is an interesting take on training because um, I think we always want to want to believe that training is a straightforward line all the time and that we always have to be, be progressing or else we're doing something wrong. And sometimes that's just, that's just not true. And, you know, like, like, and plus, you know, you're a lifter with so much experience you more or less know what works, but you're willing to experiment and you're kind of just like, well, worst case scenario, this doesn't work. And I go back to what I know works and then I can make progress and progress will could potentially be, be faster or it doesn't really matter that much in, in, in the long run. Um, so obviously I, I think pivots are probably a little bit more of a, uh, advanced programming concept what do you say in the british strategies framework well i think it's it's an important part to the to the package you know that uh you need to do it the way i would teach it is that you do a development cycle you get to that peak condition then you do a pivot and uh then you do another development cycle so it goes development pivot development pivot development pivot um the pivot kind of serves that deload function in between, you know, and I mean, it's a lot of the stuff that you said, and I know some of our coaches too, uh, will use a intro week as well. Uh, and that's totally fine. But, um, oh, something else I wanted to just mention, like you were talking about, um, you know, the experience of being a strength athlete and having some redundant training, like, this is a really common experience in a way that, you know, you're doing when you're in a, a say you're starting a, a high volume block, your enthusiasm is really high in the beginning. By the end of the high volume block, you're like, Jesus, I'm, fe I'm fed up with all this volume. I just want to put some weight on the bar and lift heavy, you know, 
totally makes sense. And then you get to the intensity block and you're enthusiastic. But by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, man, I'm just craving doing some like real volume work, just getting a good pump in and, and really feeling like I'm working hard. You know, uh, there's this tendency for lifters by the end of a block to want to do something different. And that's been my experience with emerging strategies too, is that you have a lifter and while we're in the development block, they're engaged mentally, they're focused. And when we get to the end of that development block, you know, you're getting into this peak condition, that's still fun, you know, even though maybe you're starting to get a little bit worn down by that time. But then once you pass that peak condition, you get bored in a hurry, you know, and all of a sudden sessions go from being fun to like, uh, I just don't feel like going to the, going to do the same workout again today because now you're past your peak condition. You're no longer uh, expecting big increases in your strength. You know, you're, you're so. It's what you that, were doing. Yeah. It's like, so yeah. All right. Like I can go to pay off. Like how about I see where you're going? It's like, yeah. why not do like an intensity based deload in like a volume block, you know, for, for, you, for, for a pivot. Yeah, you absolutely can. Like we've, we've done like strength maintenance stuff during a pivot. That's like a single at six RPE or, you know, maybe, you know, one hard set of five and a bunch of other stuff, you know, a bunch of tempo work or something. Um, you do have to be mindful of allowing that fatigue to dissipate and not just training. I mean, the one mistake I see people make is thinking that a pivot is going to be easy. Pivots are actually training. There's less of it on the whole, but the work that you do isn't just fluff work. I'll go to the gym, screw around for 30 minutes and go home. It is actually training. There's just less of it overall, you know? So um, that's something that is, you need to mentally prepare for. But I find that like when athletes get to the end of their development block, like they're mentally ready to do something else. And the pivot provides that a lot of times, like it's different exercises, it's a different structure, a different intensity zone. And that's a good way to switch things up. Then you do that for a short period of time, uh, usually one to two weeks. And then mentally they're ready to get back to doing some stuff, you know, maybe not exactly the same thing, uh, but they're ready to get back to more serious training. I really, really like, like that. I think there's, there's a ton of value in that. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to um, ask uh, one last thing about emerging strategies. This is kind of related to, do you think that coaches in general should kind of come up with their own coaching philosophies or frameworks by which they make decision, decisions by um, that they kind of do in certain, you know, certain athlete situations or responses is there like do you think there's an importance to that and having a coach having an actual system or way they make this decisions because it sounds like to me like you kind of have that framework yeah i don't know i honestly hadn't thought too much about that um i suppose I'm definitely in favor of people, you know, solving the problems that they see in front of them. I'm in favor of people, you know, being students of the sport and being engaged. Like you pointed out earlier on, I think paying attention is probably the most valuable thing that you get from a coach. And 
a lot of what the emergent strategy system is designed for is to create a system that encourages and incentivizes you to pay attention. If you're paying attention, then it works better. You know, um, there's, if you're going to go on autopilot, man, it's going to be a disaster, you know? So, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, forgive the analogy, it's a little bit of a self-serving analogy, I guess, but it's a, it's a high performance car that if you're going to work it, then it's going to be awesome, you know, but if you're just going to drive it like a soccer mom, then, uh, you know, the thing wants to go, you know, so, so you gotta, you gotta drive it. So, um, um, yeah, as far as like whether other coaches should kind of build their own systems. I mean, I guess it's a little bit hypocritical for me to say no. Um, I mean, by all means, again, solve the problem that you see, but do it in a robust way. I mean, I, I would say that the systems that I've tried to make should be fairly malleable, you know? Um, and I mean, you don't have to take every component of any system that I've come up with, but I do want them to be malleable. I want them to be uh, useful in a, in a wide range of scenarios. Like it just doesn't, it's not very helpful if it's like, oh yeah, that emerging strategy thing. It doesn't work if the athlete's in a cut. Like, <laughs> well, that's just not very useful then, you know? Yeah, um, just, 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 you know, and, uh, this is something that I thought about a lot because I've seen, I think good training is, is, is good training fundamentally. I think there are principles and there are heuristics that um, every single program should probably have, you know, for powerlifting, you need to go heavy sometimes. How that looks for each lifter is going to be different. Um, you know, maybe heavy for one li lifter, is you know really heavy if you get them you know for example uh and i've talked to steve denobi if you don't know if you're familiar with him but you know he's we've talked about this several times about how lots of times how we view rep ranges and what people respond to is kind of is like kind of rep ranges are like our loading zones like does it respond better to the quote unquote moderate intensity or high intensity or volume work is kind of dependent a lot on like range of motion for example so like for myself, I have a very middle of the road leverages for, um, you know, deadlift and bench press. So, you know, more or less, you know, around like, you know, I will program two to two to seven and I'll have some sort of like basic like periodization that I will tend to use for lifters who also have more of a quote, a quote, quote, middle of the bell curve leverages. Whereas for myself or another lifter has really, really long femurs or say I have really short arms for deadlift just beats them up. Like I'm not really going to program in super high reps for those lifters most of the time. Um, but like what you said, it's important to be malleable and adaptable and also be willing to try new things because I would never in a million years have given me eights on safety bar squats. It was one that like by rep five, I want to quit. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I, Eric, Eric, Eric gave me a four by 10 last block. Like it worked, but uh, I was, I was not happy. Um, <laughs> but like that drove my squat, like the best I've ever seen it. And so I'm like, well, maybe there's something to that. And like in my framework, I might've been like, maybe I wouldn't give myself more than fives, but Hey, maybe I could have done like a six by five and got, or eight by five and gotten the same response. But then there's a three off. So um, I guess like my whole take on that is that I think again, 
going back to the, what we said before, as long as you're paying attention and then you can, you're making logical decisions from what you're seeing, you're going to eventually emerge to a strategy that works. And I guess like that's kind of the beauty of your system is that if you really understand it and if you're thinking enough and if you're paying attention enough, you're going to assemble upon what your athlete responds to, how their training is, how their psychology is. Like I have some lifters who I know if it's week four and this is like their peak week condition where they're also historically very moody, very tired, very, very like neurotic. I'm going to have to be, be like very, very like nice and remind them that like, yes, you're tired, but like restorably, you're also performing very well. So like get excited about that. Like instead of thinking about, about this fatigue being a bad thing, this is a good thing. This is actually triggering your highest performance. And then yeah. after that, we're going to deal with that and relax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, gosh, there was something I wanted to add in there, but I think my my oxygen debt for my training earlier is <laughs> catching up with that, 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 that epoch has gotten over reached session. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're, you're right about that. And that uh, there are principles that tend to work for pretty much everybody. And that's something that I don't think I appreciated fully when I first started teaching emerging strategies which like it, it, to me, it was like, well, this is a separate framework and it can stand on its own. And in theory it can, you know, like you can just, if you didn't know anything about training uh, and you learned emerging strategies, you should be able to uh, probably have a lot of errors, but eventually trial and error your way to uh, an effective block. You're getting good data out you're following the trail of athlete response. So you're going to zero in on the things that are most effective, you know? Uh, and my thought was that most powerlifters, especially most powerlifting coaches will have come in contact with enough just general ideas about powerlifting training that that would be fine. But what I'm noticing as time has gone on that you do need a robust understanding of, um, you know, more conventional training practices, that there are always gaps in our knowledge and that those conventional training practices can help fill in some of those gaps. You know, imagine like, you know, you're, the scenario that we're always faced with as coaches, you get a new athlete that signs up and they say, you know, I've got a competition in eight weeks. Well, you don't really have time to do like six or eight blocks and really dial it in and figure out what they need. Like, that's great. And that can come in time, but you need to hit the ground running. And that's where um, kind of knowing what most people respond best to, it gives you kind of a higher probability start. And I know that that may not sound super appealing. I'm doing a bad job of like marketing my own services, I guess. But, <laughs> but uh, like, that's just the truth. You know, like you've got to have a place to start and you look for these higher hit percentages, uh, you know, more likely uh, strategies when you're getting started. And that gives you a foothold. And usually it's fine, you know, but it can be so much better than just fine if we just get a little bit of time to, to dial things in. 
Yeah, I guess circling back to my earlier question about beginners and immediates in advance, what I was thinking along those lines of that other question is that I feel like that's kind of how people train at first is kind of an emerging strategies framework. Beginners go into the, the gym. They say, hmm, did this work or not? What did I do? What exercises made me feel good? And then as they get more training time and more training history and they kind of realize like, oh, these exercises make me feel good or this is about the amount of sets I respond well to or this is like where I see, you know, and I think the beauty of it too is that when you're a beginner, the scope is so much more broad of what you can respond to and what you will respond to. And naturally over time, as you're paying attention, which is the key point, you're going to zone in as you advance on what drives your progress more and more because that's when it matters more and more in my opinion. And so that's kind of like how I view it because I was just, just thinking about like, what did I do when I first started lifting? I went to the gym, did what I felt until I felt like I was done and I went home. Yeah. And that worked. That worked. That that drove adaptation. So I was doing anything wrong. Was I, you know, like, you know, I, we could sit here and argue about, well, scientifically, you're not doing that often. I'm like, dude, I made gains. Like, I was making yeah. progress. So, like, who cares? Yeah. And, and I mean, like, all that stuff tends to be troubleshooting after the fact anyway. And that's fine. That's a, that's a great role for it, I think. You know, and I was going to point out, too, that, uh, like if you understand the problem, it's really a knowledge problem that emerging strategies is trying to solve. Like what training is best suited for this individual lifter and how do we kind of zero in on that? It's a very, very similar uh, framework to uh, say agile management. Um, and I know that there's some other coaches in, in more in the sport coaching world who've kind of ported over uh, agile, uh, the management system into a training system. It's the same, same type of idea. It's a bottom-up strategy. In, in, in the case of agile, it's mostly used in software development, but it's a way to, to do like bottom-up planning in a software environment, rapid iterations, uh, iterations that allow you to evolve in a direction that you may not have predicted and planned in the future. Uh, that's should hopefully be a little bit more robust to uh, unexpected things, certain projects taking longer than expected or, uh, you know, bugs and things like that, you know, uh, emerging information. Um, so it's got some parallels to agile management. Um, and it's just a, an attempt to be pragmatic. You know, like the, the theories are great and I mean that sincerely, like it's, it's good to know that stuff. It helps to inform some of your decision-making, but at the end of the day, we've got to uh, observe that, that those decisions are having the effect that we want in the real world. I really like all that. I guess um, to close this out, I wanted to just, just ask you a little bit about uh, what you think about the more widespread adoption of RPE in programming to today. Uh, how it seems to be more or less commonplace now, um, modern powerlifting programming, and um, you know whether or not there will be any adjustments or updates that you would like to make about RPE in general, since it's in you know induction or things that you think that lifters could do to better, I guess use the use the, the system. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's awesome that lifters are using it. Uh, I think it 
helps lifters auto-regulate their training sooner. Uh, interestingly, I was having a conversation with Jen Thompson about this yesterday, and she's not, I think before our conversation, she's not a big fan of RPE. I don't know that she's necessarily a fan now, uh, but I think she maybe changed her understanding a little bit based on our conversation. And it's just that lifters have used auto-regulation since the beginning of time. You know, when I was coming up and kind of the origin of bringing R RPE to powerlifting was that uh, programs often were prescribed as percentage-based, uh, maybe rep max based in certain, certain cases. Um, there was this concept that started to float around uh, after I'd been training for some time that, oh, hey, you can leave a rep in the tank. You don't have to take every set to failure. And I mean, I guess people were doing that for the main lifts, you know, but like supplemental lifts, people would just, you know, tricep extensions, you just go to, you can't do anymore. Um, and then it's like, well, if you leave a rep in the tank, maybe you can do an extra set. You know, maybe you recover a little bit faster. Uh, so it, it was that kind of idea. Um, but even like the percentage-based programs, people made changes to them. You know, like the program prescribes 85%, but you get in there and your warm-ups just feel like crap. Then, you know, an experienced veteran lifter is going to make changes, you know. Uh, they made changes the other way too. Like, hey, I know we're today's supposed to be an easy day. It's supposed to be like 80% for some fours, uh, but I feel good. So we're maxing out. So, I mean, not all changes are, are great ideas, but uh, uh, they were making them. And what they would say about training is you got to learn to listen to your body. Okay, great. How do I do that? Well, you just train for like 10 years and you just figure it out. It's like, well, that's freaking great. Like I've got a team full of powerlifters who've been training for like two years. What am I supposed to tell them? <laughs> you know, good luck guys. Um, so like the concept of RPE is kind of a way to teach younger lifters, more inexperienced lifters, what the experienced lifters already knew and were had already been doing right uh there's a little bit more to it than that like we get a little bit more fine-grained control because we're uh describing this explicitly instead of it just being totally intuitive subjective we get better communication uh and we get you know it, it makes it less subjective less fuzzy right like if i say you know, that was a nine RPE. You can look at it and say, that didn't look like a nine RPE to me. And we may argue about that, but now we can argue about it. Where before I may say that felt hard and you would say, I don't know exactly what that means. Yeah. <laughs> like how hard, how hard is hard, you know? Um, so there's more granularity and that helps with communication and, and everything else. I mean, as far as things people can do to make it serve them better, I think if, if you're inclined to look into velocity, that would be kind of a way to take it to a new level. Um, I've been using velocity since 2009, uh, but to be clear, it just informs my RPE. So my RPE rating is primary, 
but just like you may, you know, rate a set a nine RPE and then look back at the video and think maybe I need to adjust my rating a little bit. I wouldn't go crazy with that, by the way. I would maybe adjust it like half a point or something. Uh, but you can use those outside uh, factors to influence your RPE a little bit. Velocity is the same. You know, it's an outside influence. You can use it to influence your RPE a little bit. Like, yeah, that felt like a nine RPE, but the velocity was really good. So maybe it was a little bit easier than my perception would have me believe. Now, last caveat uh, is just that as somebody who's experienced with using RPE and velocity, they agree with each other most of the time, the vast majority of the time. So that's as it should be as well. So something interesting about, about that, um, I uh, so I film all my all my warmups. It helps me inform kind of my my top set as kind of my my ghetto velocity for the, the device. <laughs> um, yeah. So like example, I was working up to a single uh, eight point five to, to nine on my deadlift, and I put on six hundred six, and it felt really heavy. But I looked at the video, and I was like, I was like a six. So I was like, okay, like you, you can probably do your plan, you know wait for that day based on the past training data and like i've moved like you know it, it, thankfully you know but um i guess i guess just to go off of, go off of that then um just to wrap things things up um how does rpe make a lifter better how does it make them um contribute to their long-term developments more than just having a percentage-based program, uh, specifically for people who have competition aspirations? Well, I mean, the first, probably most pragmatic thing is it's a really useful skill to develop, you know, just kind of this awareness of your own performance. Um, that's always gonna be affected a little bit by your emotions. So when you get into a competition setting, I wouldn't rely on your perception just the same way that you would if you were in training. Your perception is going to be skewed because competitions are an emotional event. Um, but having that skill will make you a, a more useful uh, feedback mechanism than not having the skill. So knowing your RPE will be better than not knowing your RPE. Uh, so there's that one's the pragmatic one. But the second one, probably the most important one, is uh, just what we were saying before: is paying attention. You know, if you are training based on RPE, uh, you're gonna make changes to the program based on that RPE, then you're going to pay attention. Like you're saying, like you're paying attention to your warmups, how's it, how are things moving? How am I performing? You're paying attention to all that, you're switched on. And I, man, there's no substitute for that. If you've ever had any training sessions that are not like that, like maybe there's just a bunch of just low intensity, low RPE volume work, and you just got to go in and get it done. There's just not much to be done there. Like I've had sessions like that. And, and like, I think, God, I, this is a little bit boring. So I'm just going to put on a podcast and not really just kind of zone out, do my volume and, and leave, you know, those sessions are missing something, you know, that they're not as engaging and they're not, you're not paying attention. You're not like making the effort as much. And I think there's a tremendous value in making that effort, you know? So, um, I mean, I think it's a system that really encourages that and rewards people who do it as well. Uh, so uh, 
I, I suppose that's that's my answer. <laughs> I think that's a really great way to end off off of this, this podcast. Uh, we've been talking for, for quite a while. And I wanted to just uh, really thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. Um, I guess uh, maybe like let us know about any of your upcoming plans for like competition or training and like where we can find you. Sure. Uh, let's see. Upcoming plans. Uh, we've been doing a lot of courses lately. Um, we have a course on emerging strategies. Uh, we have uh, courses on velocity-based training, equipped lifting, coaching skills, all kinds of stuff. So we've been really putting a lot of effort into courses lately. So if anybody is uh, inclined to look into that, um, we've also still somewhat recently launched an, an RTS community. Uh, and that's really for people who are, uh, I would say, kind of self-coached or uh, or possibly coaches of others, you know, provide some community for uh, for that. So if you are looking for a place to bounce ideas around or, uh, you know, ask questions, one of the key features of that one is our office hours. And there are these standing appointments with RTS coaches and lots of uh, outside RTS subject matter experts. And they're the, just standing meetings. You uh, find one that you want to go to and you just jump on a call. So you can just jump on a call with uh, Megan Bryanton, who is a uh, biomechan biomechanist. And, you know, you say, hey, you know, I've been having this problem with, you know, so-and-so squats, you know, maybe send her a video ahead of time. And she says, yeah, I watched the video and this is what I think the weaknesses are. And, you know, you can go back and forth, ask questions. Maybe you uh, jump on a call with uh, Kristen Lander and ask about nutrition. So there's lots and lots of, we've got something going on there like every day. So... <laughs> Uh, that's something else that we've been doing lately that we're, we're pretty proud of. I mean, there's, I'm sure I'm forgetting about something, but I won't drone on and on about RTS stuff. Um, we post about all this stuff uh, on our Instagram. So if uh, anybody is super curious, that's, that's where I would look. Any competitions for, for you in the upcoming future, just training to get stronger. I feel like you might have some inside information here that, uh, that, <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I'm considering doing a meet in the spring. Um, I haven't done one since two, 2016, but things are going well. I'm feeling healthy. I've been able to kind of return to powerlifting training uh, in earnest. So if all goes well, uh, I'll spin up and do something in the spring. So that'd be fun. The, the return of Mike T to the platform. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to for sure. Well, all really, really exciting stuff. Um, be sure to um, plug your, your site and Instagram and uh, RTS's Instagram as well in the description box below. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast and I will catch you guys on the, the next one later.